Welcome to increment 184 of Hebrews 2020. We see Jesus as we continue our brief and very transient dispersion. One more time, I'm going to announce it this year, 2021. Salvation Army Treasures for Children campaign. Thank you. I see the fruits of your generosity today, even here at the building, at the Alamo, as I like to call it and appreciate very much your generosity. You can cons continue to bring them in for a few more days, and you can call the office 724-335-3550 to drop off gifts, new toys, new toys, not throwaway stuff. Father, we thank you for this opportunity. We thank you that once again you've opened a door of opportunity to receive your wonderful word. We enter through that open door. We pray that you'll now grant us the grace to make the most of this opportunity. We ask it in Christ's name, amen. You're going to notice up on the website before too very long that we will be putting up a series of I believe 66 messages called lenses. There will be a foreword that will accompany them in print. And there is a printed version of all these too. So it'll be audio, visual, and printed version. Again, highly rough and not too edited. And this series called lenses was produced in late 2008, early 2009. And there is a caveat before this, and I want to mention the caveat. This is before I received two profound insights, one of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ and the universal impact of his cross. And second, before I received the understanding that justification is through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and not individual faith. Those two primary insights had not yet been reached. We were leaning hard into them at the time. But I believe that Lenses offers enough for the reader and the listener to glean from and that I think could be very highly beneficial in your study of the scriptures and really opening up the door for insights. It's simply called Lenses, and it's 66 chapters that commemorate the 66 books of the canonical Bible, and I think the last few are question and answer things that we took on. Please do not attribute perfection to these, as I would say for any message, and also note the time in their history there's enough there to glean, however, that I think it's worth putting up for you. So with that caveat, I hope you are able to benefit greatly from it called lenses. But I've said all that because really today we're dealing with another lens, dropping a lens, as it were, on the scriptures. And we're going to Hebrews 7.4 for the lens of prefiguration. Prefiguration itself is a lens through which we see Jesus, our Lord. And our whole theme is we see Jesus, and it's from the thematic verse in Hebrews 2.9, which speaks of Jesus experiencing death for everyone, far from God. So 
the lens of prefiguration. In our last message, we went into the tithes, the thing. So we presented a kind of narrow focus. This time, I'm widening up the focus and giving us more of a wider lens to review a larger horizon of the same passage, Hebrews 7, 4 through 10, which I will read in a moment. But I want to open up with something that we have tackled once or twice before and that is not really noted in any biblical commentaries, but one can hear the mocking accusation of the accuser to the future first readers of Hebrews before they receive the heavenly answer in this homily. You can hear his accusation. You don't have an archpriest. And don't say this Jesus is a priest or an archpriest. He isn't even qualified. Because he's not in Levi's line. So that was the accusation that hovered over this little church. And it was causing a little bit of discouragement and just even maybe a little bit of despair among some of the recipients. So this paragraph, this particular paragraph, must have repelled him quite extensively. Here it is, Hebrews 7. Observe how great... This one is Melchizedek, but not just Melchizedek. We are asked here to observe, and the Greek word is theoreo, T-H-E-O-R-E-O, theoreo. Theoreo, theoreo. To observe how great this one is. Yes, Melchizedek, but through the prefiguration lens of Melchizedek, the real issue is, look how great Jesus is. Observe how great this one is, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth. Hodekatane. Abraham Edokain, to whom Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils of war. Indeed, the sons of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a commandment in the Torah, the law of Moses, to collect a tithe from the people, that is, from their brothers, even though these also have come out of Abraham's loins. But one who did not descend from this priestly lineage received tithes from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. This Melchizedek didn't come from any Levitical line and he received a tithe from Abraham and he blessed the one who had the promises, which is Abraham. In that case, the blesser was greater than the blessee. Now, beyond all dispute, the inferior in status is blessed by the superior. In this case, most emphatically. In the one case, that is the case of the Levitical priests, men who descended from Abraham through Levi, received tithes men who die 
receive tithes. Men who have a beginning of days and an end of life receive tithes. But in the other case, meaning Melchizedek himself, as a prefiguration of Jesus, the ever-living Son of God, it is testified that he lives. What about this Melchizedek? Well, he lives. One might even say, verse 9, that through Abraham, Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes because he was still in his forefather's loins when Melchizedek met him. Now let's proceed from the subject of encounters, all kinds of encounters, first kind, second kind, third kind, fourth kind. The Bible is full of important encounters. There are encounters of God with people, like the encounter of Hagar with Yahweh and of Jacob with Yahweh at Peniel. In the Gospels, every encounter of people with Jesus was an extraordinary meeting of human beings with the God-man. There are significant encounters between people in the scriptures like the long-anticipated and feared by Jacob meeting between Jacob and Esau one which surprisingly resulted in happy reconciliation and not in the death of Jacob. When Jacob saw Esau, he exclaimed that it was like seeing the face of Yahweh, and he had seen the face of Yahweh. There was the providential meeting of Abigail with David, which prevented David from taking a rash action. There were encounters between angels and human beings, among the most memorable being perhaps the visitation by Gabriel to Mary, the soon-to-be mother of Jesus, Luke 1, 26 to 38. Angels are able to appear in various modes, some of which may shroud entirely their otherworldly identity. For this reason, Hebrews 13.2 says, don't neglect to show hospitality because by being hospitable, some have welcomed angels without even knowing it. When angels appear, it's most often because they're sent by God from heaven, obviously. When angels appeared in their first heavenly, in their full heavenly regalia, we have a record of those in scriptures. When they do appear in their full heavenly regalia and splendor, splendor that they take from heaven after being in the presence of the Father and seeing the face of the Father, it characteristically had an awe-inspiring and sometimes terrifying effect on the viewer, such as Luke 24, 5. Two times in the book of Revelation, John made the mistake of prostrating himself to worship an angel. So we can imagine how imposing and glorious must have been that angelic appearance. Two occasions, two occasions. In the first, John was told by the angel, don't do that. I'm a fellow slave with you and your brothers who have the testimony of Jesus. 
worship God. Got a little rebuke there from the angel. In the second case, the same rebuke came. John didn't learn the first time. Revelation 22.9. Don't do that as John began to prostrate himself worshipfully. I am the fellow slave of you and your brothers, the prophets, and of those who guard the words of this book. Worship God. Worship God. That's a pretty good advice, piece of advice. Don't worship angels, no matter how glorious their appearance. Don't worship celebrities, no matter how evidently glorious or diva-like they appear on the red carpet. Beware, even Satan disguises as an angel of light. Don't worship men or women, no matter what their phony aura of fame or celebrity. Worship God. When Thomas truly apprehended the divine identity of Jesus, he rightly worshipped him. No rebuke would come from the lips of Jesus for this act by Thomas, my Lord and my God. In fact, worship is the only rational act to one who intuits the true divine essence and being of Jesus. I'm giving this introduction because there exists the speculation that Melchizedek was an angel. Well, if he was, Abraham didn't make the same mistake as John. He surely didn't move to worship Melchizedek thinking him to be divine either. If Abraham had assumed Melchizedek to be divine, he would have identified him as none other than the Lord God who had called him in Genesis 12. And he would have no doubt acted appropriately. So it appears that Abraham did not mistake Melchizedek, an angel, not for God. We're back to Melchizedek being an actual historical human figure, one with true dignity and greatness, and not fabrication or ostentation. So much human greatness, as it's so-called, is really ostentation or fabrication, the result of legend, or someone able to dunk a basketball in a hoop that's about two feet higher than them. It's not real. For there is a human greatness that's endowed by God. There is a human greatness that's endowed by God. One translation that's famous is David saying, your gentleness have made me great, has made me great. I don't think that's the final true translation, but it's interesting. Psalm 1835. David had a greatness and a dignity, but he recognized that it was totally a gift from God. He had a royal dignity. There is a human greatness that is endowed by God. And anyone who is great by an endowment of God will recognize that he is nothing without the grace of God. And he will have the basic virtue of humility. Anyone lacking the basic virtue of humility has no greatness nor no possibility for it. 
There is a human greatness that is endowed by God. That is the greatness that Melchizedek had, a greatness by God's grace, a perceptible greatness. As the apostles perceived the grace that was with Paul, so Abraham perceived the grace that was with Melchizedek. Today, a person can have true greatness and true dignity and be spurned and passed right on by, by the masses. While the vilest of people can be praised and adored, adulated and celebrated. Grace can work in a human being in such a way to produce a kind of gracious dignity. I've seen it in many men and women in my time in the ministry, my time in life, really. A dignity that can be perceived by the spiritually perceptive, but easily be missed by the inattentive and the self-occupied. Sometimes we fail to recognize the dignity and the graciousness of people we have known in our lives until after they've passed off the scene and only in memory can we realize, wow, how much gracious kindness, generosity of spirit, dignity, grace endowed in a dignity they had. And so at least memory can recover this. I'm considering this encounter now on its purely human, human terms. So it's a kind of a reflection, a meditation. Over and above all is the encounter that the disciples and eyewitnesses had of the eternal word made flesh. We observed his glory. Glory that could only have been that of the eternally begotten Son of God. None other could demonstrate that kind of glory. That's what John said in John 1.14. They observed, observed. Notice the word used in John 1.14 as well as Hebrews 7.4. They observed his glory, the glory, they said, that could only belong to the eternally begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth, full of an unusual dignity, graciousness, mercifulness, forgiveness, compassion. Now, theologically speaking, in Hebrews, it's coming into a clear view that Abraham's tithe at the top of the heap of the spoils of the recent desert war handed to Melchizedek was not only a result of Abraham's detection of Melchizedek's priestly status. His tithe to Melchizedek represented the recognition of a priest and of a king whose importance went beyond the borders of Israel. And of course, from the vantage point provided to us, we know that this Melchizedek was a type, a prefiguration 
of Jesus, the universal king who reigns and serves as perpetual priest in the Salem above. Through this lens of prefiguration, observe how great he is. We see Jesus through the lens of prefiguration. This in one sense then could be the 67th chapter of lenses. Melchizedek is a prefiguration of Jesus, the Son of God, and we see Jesus through the lens of this prefiguration. For if someone is said to be made like the Son of God, then through this person we may view the someone he is made to resemble. In Melchizedek there is the connotation or the suggestion, we might say, of eternity. But not the reality of eternity. The reality of eternity pertains to Jesus as great archpriest. When John saw him at Patmos, the Lord said to him, I am he who lives and who died and came to life again and lives forevermore. Something about this Jesus that pertains to the reality of eternity, something wholly other than we encounter in everyday life. If Melchizedek is in reality and in actuality a priest forever, then there are two perpetual priests. So he's not in reality and in actuality. He is in prefiguration that. That's not the case with Melchizedek. Jesus is the only mediator between God and humankind as one person with the natures of both God and Man, We don't have standing between us and the Father, two mediators, but one. Not Melchizedek and Jesus, but Jesus whom Melchizedek prefigures. The attention is to be on Jesus, not Melchizedek. Melchizedek is merely a lens through which to view Jesus as the eternal archpriest. So later on in the homily, and at a very pivotal point, in it, the PT says, looking unto Jesus directly now. Looking unto Jesus, meaning directly looking. And by that he means to look away from everything and everyone else to Jesus. In Hebrews 7, 4, we the readers are encouraged to observe. Another word for see or look or think about how great this Melchizedek is. The purpose of the teaching shepherd is for us to observe through Melchizedek and through the lens afforded by the prefiguration of Melchizedek to see how great Jesus is or to see Jesus in his surpassing greatness. Now, there are many words in the Bible that mean simply to see, to see, S-E-E. E.W. E. Bullinger lists 23 
words. In his appendix 133 of the Companion Bible, three of these words are of immediate importance to us right now. First, in Hebrews 2.9, in the thesis or title verse for our current series is the Greek word blepo, B-L-E-P-O, blepo. Now, blepo has to do with mental vision and of seeing with the eyes of the heart, as we've seen over and over again, as to what it means to see Jesus. It's an intellective capacity created by the Lord so that we may see Jesus in the sense of a mental perception of him, as in a glass darkly, so to speak. Bullinger notes that this kind of seeing means to observe accurately and with desire. Oh, how we desire to be with him. And that it implies more contemplation than another common Greek word, horao. In our present passage, we have the word theoreo, as we've already looked at, T-H-E. O-R-E-O, theoreo, which means to be a spectator of, to gaze at, and it means a continued and prolonged gaze. Much later on in Hebrews 12, 2, we're confronted with the word, a third word, ah. A-P-H, aphorao, which is horao plus the Greek preposition apo. Aphorao. Aphorao. Now that's significant and it will come at a significant place in our later study of Hebrews, later in the homily. Aphorao means to look away from others to someone who is to be considered seriously and intently, in this case, worshipfully. Looking away from all others to Jesus means not only to look away from the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11, away and beyond to Jesus, the source and completer of faith, but it means that we're also to look away from the angels and Moses and Joshua and Aaron and Melchizedek too. Melchizedek is presented to our mental vision only so that we can look away from him to Jesus. In fact, the whole aim of this series of teachings in Hebrews is to urge all of us to look away from everything else and everyone else and all the problems in the country and in the world and in our families and in our lives and to look to Jesus and to carefully contemplate him and carefully consider how his perseverance through unspeakable adversity and even the endurance of the cross led to exaltation and glory. Melchizedek wasn't written about so that the readers of Scripture would become obsessed with Melchizedek, but so that through the literary lens afforded by Melchizedek, readers would become occupied with Christ.
I'm going to read the passage again in Hebrews 7, 4. Each time we advance, maybe it makes more sense to you. Observe how great this one is, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils of war. Indeed, the sons of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the Torah to collect a tithe from the people, that is, from their brothers, even though these also have come out of Abraham's loins. But one who did not descend from this priestly lineage received tithes from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. Now beyond all dispute, in this case, the inferior in status, Abraham, is blessed by the superior, Melchizedek. In the one case, men who die receive tithes, that is, in the case of Levitical priests. But in the other case, in the Melchizedekan order, Melchizedek is a prefiguration of Jesus, the Son of God, it's testified simply that he lives. That's capitalized upon in 715 through 17, 725 through 27, that he lives. Because he lives, he makes intercession constantly and perpetually and endlessly for us. <clears throat> Verse 9, one might even say that through Abraham, Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes because he was still in his forefather's loins when Melchizedek met him. So we're back to when Melchizedek met Abraham. When Melchizedek met Abraham, the last sentence in that exegesis of that little episode is about the tithe in Genesis 14.20. And the writer says it's sort of like Levi, still in Abraham's loins, was paying tithes to a greater priest even though he hadn't been born yet. So, hey, you guys, not only do you have a high priest, you have a high priest prefigured in Melchizedek who's far greater than any Levitical arch priest. So get behind me, accuser. As far as we can tell from the brief historical record of Melchizedek, he's still a priest and he still lives. In other words, figuratively speaking, we could say, hey, he's still a priest and he still lives. And this is the echo, an echo of the somewhat ironic reasoning of the pastor teacher. Because there's no record that he's dead, he lives. Because there's no beginning of days, he just enters upon the scene spontaneously. In that sense, he's a prefiguration of the Son of God. By the absence of the scriptural record on Melchizedek's, quote, end of life, what the scripture does, does say is simply that he lives. And this, again, moves into Hebrews 7.16, where he lives in the power of an incorruptible life through resurrection. In verse 25, to make intercession for us, to save us to the uttermost. Jesus, that is. 
that there is neither an indication of the beginning of days nor end of life for Melchizedek is employed as a figurative lens through which to refer to the eternity of the Son of God. At the base of this prefiguration is a contrast, therefore, between human and divine qualifications for priesthood. And even beneath this base is the rock of divine action over human action. Beneath that, even the great contrast of divinity with mere humanity. So, David Peterson quotes F.F. Bruce in this pithy little paragraph. He says, Melchizedek remains a priest continually for the duration of his appearance in the biblical narrative. But in the anti-type, Christ remains a priest continually without qualification. And it is not the type that determines the anti-type, but the anti-type that determines the type. Jesus is not portrayed after the pattern of Melchizedek, but Melchizedek is made like unto the Son of God. So I would say he is a prefiguration, a lens through which we view the Son of God. So to guide this whole thing toward a view of Jesus and his universally saving glory, consider this. This is my thought. I'll close with it. The superiority of Melchizedek over Abraham was the superiority of the one who prefigured the fulfillment of all the promises that Abraham had received and held and believed. So we thank you, Father. Direct our attention away from all else. Not that we do not have to attend to the daily lives, not that we need to be ignorant of what's going on around us, but turn our attention as you did with Peter toward Jesus walking on water. Turn our attention toward him. And teach us to look to him beyond and away from all else. For he alone will provide the stability that we need to walk above the waves of our own time. And to walk in the victory that was provided to us by God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name, amen.